Welcome to episode 40 of the Camerosity Podcast, the world's number one open source film photography podcast. My name is Mike Ekman, and Happy New Year to all you out there. This is our first of many episodes for 2023, and as promised, we're starting off the new year continuing our Pentax discussion we started in episode 28. As always, from Gainesville, Florida, the man who shoots alligators with a 50mm lens is Mr. Anthony Rue. Do the bird photographers with their 500 millimeter camo lenses give you the stink eye when you do that? Absolutely. You know, first of all, they just can't understand why I don't have a 1200 millimeter Canon camouflaged DSLR because that's really all they seem to want to shoot. And so anything else I think threatens them. From Yellow Springs, Ohio, a small town, which the Guinness Book of World Records recently certified as having the most vintage camera sales of anywhere in the world is Mr. Paul Reibold. How does it feel to be a record breaker, Paul? Well, I, I'm, I'm not going to uh, rest on my laurels anytime soon since I've still got about 543 pieces in the basement. And finally, from Sydney, Australia, the city that brought us Hugh Jackman and NXS is our own superstar, Theo Panagopoulos. Hey, Theo, how many autographs per day do you have to sign from your fans each time you leave the house? Oh, uh, I think, uh, let me do the tallies here, uh, zero. <laughs> I'm not quite there yet. Has but, Noel ever asked you for your autograph? Uh, no, no, they generally, they do actually ask me about the podcast sometimes when I do meet up with some of the local uh, photographers, uh, but unfortunately um, no one's really asking for autographs yet. So Nobody's uh, shown up with a, with a Sharpie and a, and a K1000 and asked for your autograph on the... Uh, no, plate. no. I think, I think they're, they're worried about one thing in particular if I sign their K1000 is they do... Yeah, the devaluing of the resale value (laughs) once I sign it. (laughs) Okay, well, um, it's been a great holiday season. I hope all you guys had a wonderful Christmas, uh, Festivus, whatever, New Year's. Uh, I know I did. Uh, I got a a fancy new mic stand here for the podcast, so uh, maybe the microphone will stay out of my face while I'm talking. But it looks like we got a bunch of people in the waiting room, so I'm going to start letting them in. Ed's joining us. All right, we got some... uh, Returning guests, uh, Bob Rodoloni's here, Mark Faulkner, Larry Effler. Hey, Larry. Andrew Smith is back. Hey, Andrew. How you doing? I see a couple first. Oh, Mario's here. Sorry, Mario. Hey, Mario. How's it going? All right. We got a couple uh, first-time callers. Uh, Ed Gabe, welcome to the show, Ed. Thank you. Glad to be here. You want to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Ed Gabe. I'm from Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, I'm a professional photographer for builders and contractors and commercial real estate uh, by trade, but my passion is still film photography. And that goes back to the 1980s for me. Awesome. And believe it or not, Ed and I have a connection and that he was also a cave diver involved with Global Underwater Explorers when I was uh, active in in the diving community. Yeah, that's right. Super cool. uh, Anthony and I, uh, not together, Repping my Halcyon shirt. Nice. I've got a few of those in storage. Yeah, we're a couple of the weirdos that go underwater into caves. Cool. All right, there is Nato. Hey, Nato, how you doing? Doing all right. How are you guys doing? You want to introduce yourself? Yeah. So I'm Nato Strusko. I'm from the Twin Cities area. Um, kind of a camera nerd. Worked at camera shop for a while. Awesome. Old Leica. I'm actually the guy that emailed you about the, the Pentax LTM lens. Oh, okay, cool. Figured I'd join up and talk. We talked after the the first Pentax episode. We are the the question came up actually twice about whether Azahi had ever made a rangefinder, nope. and we all concluded they hadn't. But uh, you pointed out the um, 
the contemporary screw mouth L39 Pentax yep. SMC right lens. He's got one. Awesome. Yep. Yeah, we all we all quickly looked on eBay uh, once we talked about it, and then we all just yes. get it mine. <laughs> so, how long have you had that lens? So I've actually only had mine about a year. Um, okay. And actually, the prices in that amount of time have just skyrocketed. Yeah, a lot of lenses have. Which camera yeah. do you have it on? I've got an M6 Classic. The only other person I know that has one is uh, our buddy Von Cabbage, and he put it on a CLE. Oh, sure. Yep. Because it was it made sense. He had a CL with a 40 on it, and so yep. he didn't have a lens for the CLE, and so that, that matched up pretty well for him. Now, do you know when, like, we, I think we kind of assumed it was early 2000s. Is that, is that about when that lens was first released? Yeah, it was uh, year 2000 specifically. 2000, okay. Yep. Well, that's cool. All right. But yeah, so everybody else, welcome back. Uh, for those of you who've been on the show before, um, like I said earlier, you know, we started the Pentax episode right before um, the holidays and we got really sidetracked with 127. Some of the time, a couple of people joked about, took took us forever to actually get on topic, but uh, that's, that's how it goes. But uh, I feel like we covered... For those of you maybe listening who haven't had a chance to listen to that episode its entirety, we pretty much covered the early years of Azahi, how they got started, the Azahi Flex, the original M40, and then eventually M42. No, I'm sorry, it was M37. And then the M42 screw mounts, the, the original, I talked about the uh, Pentax K, the original one, which had the slow speed dial. Uh, we talked about the H and S series eventually the spot Maddox. And we were just about to get into the, to the K mounts. And we kind of realized that was a good ending point because nobody wants to listen to a three hour podcast. So I felt like we could kind of start from the K mount forward. You know, Azahi obviously had a long, long history of making cameras well into the eighties and nineties. They had a couple of medium formats. They had the 110 cameras. They had quite a few point and shoots. Uh, I have a couple here that we'll talk about, but um, does anybody want to get started? Maybe one of our, our new people. Are you sure you don't want to go down a like a, a 616-116 rabbit hole for 45 minutes? before? Yes. Yeah, uh... No, 828. <laughs> we'll talk about 828. <laughs> Kodak Bantam film or rapid film. We could talk about that. <laughs> There's another 127 coming up in a couple of weeks. Yeah, that's right. January 27th. So we could find the, the Azahi 127 camera, maybe some kind of vest pocket Pentax or something. Because of the way that the uh, month lays out, we'll have three episodes in January. So uh, maybe we could talk about 127 again another time. But um, we actually have a couple things planned for the next two, but I'll talk about that at the end of the show. So uh, I don't know. Phil, who wants to start? Maybe. I know the K-mounts were, were very, very successful. They sort of reinvigorated um, Azahi's kind of stance because, you know, they were uh, tried and true throughout the 60s and 70s, but they sort of came back into the limelight again. It's, it seemed like the ES2 was the end of the line for the screw mounts, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So what was the what was the first K-mount? KM, K2X, K2. They released uh, all three of them pretty close together. Yep. Yep. I think a lot of people assume the K1000 was first, but that's not true. That came, what, 76, maybe? Uh, no, right? Later later than that, the uh, because the, the KMK2KX was 77. Okay. Uh, or they might have been they might have been 76 also. I came back into the photo industry in 77. Was the K1000 a big seller then? Like, I mean, was it as popular then as it is now? Um, it actually didn't come out until, it was, I don't have the exact date, but it was it was at least a year or two later. Because the K, the KM and KX were only out for like two years, so the K one thousand would have come out probably in about seventy nine. Okay, um, but 
the uh, those those cameras were really really good cameras. They were extremely reliable, and the the market that they were going after were the uh, Mamiya 1000 DTLs, uh, the Ricoh Singlex TLS, um, the other thread mount cameras that uh, were just at that time also switching over to Pentax K. Okay. Well, by 1984, our my college newspaper had stacks of them. Of what? The K1000s. Of K1000s. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, you could just, you know, you they were just like books on a library shelf, you know. <laughs> well, I started selling them to police departments in uh, about 1980 with the uh, Vivitar uh, Vivitar 50 millimeter macro lens, and that was the police kit. I mean, the camera. Uh, with a with a either a Panagore, an Elicar, Vivitar, fifty macro lens, and a Metz forty five flash unit in a Pelican case or some other <laughs> Alberton type case. You know that was that was a police kit for for evidence collection. Standard CSI. It was the it was what they were trained on. I mean the the uh, the crime labs all tried to standardize because policemen are. Uh, are let's I don't want to say they're stupid, but taking pictures is not really what they're there for. Sure. So you want to make it as simple for them as they can as you can. So they that became the crime lab kit. We call it the crime lab kit. The same with college students. Yeah, you are. Yeah, that's true. And th- those cameras are relatively bulletproof, so they they were uh, they were really pretty hard to break. I mean, historically, just looking at the ones that are still around today, I mean, other than maybe the match, you know, needle not working, the meter being dead, mechanically, they almost always work. In fact, I don't even know that I've come across a K1000 that didn't function. You know, it may not be perfect timing, but they usually work. Yeah. And, you know, they were they were uh, mostly metal up until the uh, the very end. I think that when they went to the Chinese. Uh, yeah, they were in Hong Kong. The plate, the Hong Kong. The base plate went to went to plastic, I think, at that point. Yeah. But most of them were were metal and, and they were it was really unusual to see one with a dead meter. I mean, they they just really were very well made and the components seemed to be good. Hey Paul, um when you say the about the components and the meter and not uh, not really finding one that would have a dead meter, does that apply or in your mind, does that apply just to the K one thousand or also to the, the KM, KX and K two? Well, you didn't see as many of those, so your, your sample isn't quite as uh, as as number as many in the sample. Um, okay. But you know, on, on the cameras of that type, like the Nicker mats and and uh, other mechanical cameras with uh, built-in light meters and match needle type cameras, the problem became that you would get a buildup on the wipers on the coil, and that caused the needle to jump. So when you see a needle jumping like that, it generally means that there's just some kind of debris or something on the in the metering uh, system. The K1000s never seemed to have that problem. It was it, Olympus also had the problem, but uh, Pentax for some reason just did not seem to have that jumpy needle syndrome that you get into with other mesh needle cameras. If I so if I understand this a little bit because I'm not very knowledgeable in this area of Pentax. What was the actual target market for the K1000 and the MX? And, and the, I mean, what was Pentex aiming for at the time? Not, not now, obviously it became a student type camera and so on, but at the time, what was Pentax actually, how was their line up actually configured? There's a whole, there's like a gap that we haven't covered. And that is between the initial, the KX and the K2, uh, there was the MX, which as I understand it, if you've ever used an MX, it was very much an analog for 
OM1 and an FM2. So it was smaller, lighter, full manual camera. Uh, it only used the battery for the light meter. Uh, I am absolutely in love with my MX. Uh, you put the the 42, is it 42 millimeter, 40 millimeter? 40 uh, millimeter right here. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the, there you go. The 40 millimeter uh, 2.8. Right, 2.8. It's a really sweet pancake lens that just turns it into a pocketable camera it's become my favorite slr of all time <laughs> yeah it's it's anybody who's used one or, or used that combination absolutely will fall in love with it but that was considered to be like a semi-pro backup camera from what i understand and then after that came the me and the me super which were their aperture priority cameras uh so they would have competed with the canon with the AE1, perhaps? That would have been close. The, the thing that happened was that you had the MX and the ME were out at the same time. Yeah. And th that was fine. The, the, but the, the MX was a full manual camera and the ME was aperture priority only. So it was like a Nikon EM. It had no manual control of the shutter speed. The only way you could control the shutter speed was by adjusting the aperture. So that lasted for just a couple of years. And then they came out with the ME Super, which was aperture priority or full manual, but you had to change the shutter speed by using those funky buttons. I really don't like that camera. So that was it. Wasn't a bad camera, but it wasn't. Yeah, it was not ergonomic at all. I mean, it was it, just really a. a I actually love that button. Uh, did you? I, could, I, I you either love it or hate it. There's, there's nobody goes eh. Yeah. <laughs> But then they they jumped the shark after that because they came out with the MG and the MV, which I've were never even heard of those really horrible cameras. They, <laughs> they one of them had no um, was a full program only, and I believe that was the MV. Um, all it did was give you a, a yellow light if you didn't have enough light. <laughs> you you'd have you could adjust the aperture, but you had no idea what the shutter speed was going to be. And so the K1000 came after those. No, the K1000 came out at about the same time. K1000 was actually out at the same time the ME and ME MX were out. Oh. It was just their budget camera. It was it was still yeah. the big body, still the, the K body, as opposed to the miniature body that you, the, the MX, I always, I, I never saw Pentax say this, but I always considered the M's to be the miniature bodies, you know, they, because they, yeah. they just made them small. The, the MX has a motor drive. I don't believe the K1000 does. No. Um, does the K1000 have a self-timer? I believe it or not, don't have one in front of me. Uh, K1000 does not have a self-timer. No. Yeah. So, because realistically, if you wanted a mechanical camera with, with, with basic metering, the K1000 is just a discount version of the MX. But uh, with the benefit we have today of being able to pick these things up for considerably less than what, you know, inflation adjusted prices, it would have been newer. You know, people talk about the prices of cameras going up, which is true, but it's only true compared to the rock bottom prices of 10 years ago. But realistically, you can still find these things at a bargain compared to what they were like new. And like, I have a K1000 and I'm asking you questions like, does it have a uh, self-timer? And, and the reason I, I don't know that is I, I don't ever touch my K1000. I mean, the MX, I have so much love for this camera. This is in, in many ways, it's like Pentax's version of the OM-1, the Olympus OM-1, Absolutely. In, in yeah. that the body is, is much smaller than other um, SLRs of the day. You know, Nikons, I love the EL-2. I love the Nikkor mats, but they're so much bigger. You know, the viewfinder on this thing is so bright. And it um, uses batteries you can get now. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, yeah, some of them, some the later Nikkor mats did too. But like I have a K2 
I don't know if you can see that, but I mean, the, the K2 is just monstrous compared to the MX. Yeah. The hard thing for me with the MX is like every time I pick it up, I don't ever want to touch any of my other K-mounts. It's it's that good. Mike, does the, does the MX have a depth of field preview? Mine does not. Oh, I thought no. it did. What I think what throws people off with the... um with any K mounts is the lens release button is right where like depth of fields would often be on a lot of, you know, a lot of, a lot of different SLRs, but uh, no, it's, it's got the self timer. It's got a shutter lock. It's got mechanical speeds from one to a thousand, uh, hot shoe FPNX, you know, so it can do both types of, um, flash sync. It's got electrical contacts on the bottom, probably for the motor, uh, obviously the motor drive coupling, but, um, I mean, in terms of just a, the MX can do absolutely everything the K1000 can, but slightly more. And it's got a smaller body, you know? So for me, that's like, I can stop talking the rest of the show. I've already covered my favorite <laughs> K1 Pentax. <laughs> I hate to keep bringing up the education market, but you could go into a, a university bookstores and they had photo class kits that were a K1000, a 50, that flash <laughs> that, uh, that everybody had. And they pushed them out the door like crazy. I mean, it was like, you, you were required to buy them if you didn't, you know, have a camera. So they moved a lot of them that way. Larry, that, that was true all the way up to about uh, 2005. Um, the bookstores, college bookstores, uh, would have uh, Nikon FM10s, uh, the uh, KE1000s, right up till the time Pentax discontinued them. They were, they were an educational market camera because they were cheap and... Uh, Lens availability was good for K mount, um, and they were they were just a, a, a really cool choice for for uh, for that particular market. Well, it, it intrigues me that the MX is kind of, at least in the the popular discussion boards and all, the MX has kind of flown under the radar because right now it seems like the ME Super is really having its day. I'm seeing a lot of people picking up on the ME Super. That's the camera was uh, in Stranger Things. Oh, that's right. That's he uses that camera. Jonathan Byers has an ME Super throughout all of season one. I can't remember if he has the same camera in season two, but uh, I don't know if that's why, but that could definitely be contributing to it. Just it, it intrigues me because, like you say, it's just it's the the uh, little button adjustment for the speed just really throws me off. And they're just they haven't been as reliable to me. I think I've been through three ME Supers yeah. uh, that all seem to be in decent shape when I got them. And, uh, you know, they're just not aging as gracefully as the, uh, the MX is. I would compare it functionally to like the Nikon EM, you know, I mean, it's got a manual 125, uh, you can set it in manual mode and use the buttons. Like you guys have both said, but, uh, for me, like if I, if I was to shoot this camera, which it's nice, I mean, it's almost identical in size to the MX. It's about the same weight, same lens, same excellent viewfinder. I, it still has the analog we know it does use LEDs. Never mind. Um, on the side, but uh, I would just leave it in auto. Like if I just want to shoot auto, that's I wouldn't even mess with the buttons on it. Andrew says he likes the buttons, so that's I mean it's kind of neat, you know. I I'd be willing to bet at the time that was pretty like futuristic, you know, to have a push button camera. They sold a lot of them at Service Merchandise and um, uh, Steinmart. I remember Service Merchandise. They had one of those near where I grew up. I got a question about the the switch from the N forty two to the K mount. Um, I just recently uh, purchased a, a KX and it's en route to me. I haven't gotten it yet, but I'm really looking forward to, to using it. But I don't have any uh, lenses, any K-mount lenses, and this is just a body. So I bought a, an adapter, an M42 to K-mount adapter, um, because I love my M42 
lenses from the Takamars to the Vivitars and all of them. Was there a substantial uh, betterment of the lens quality between the, the old M42 Takamars to the the SMC Takamaras of the of the Kmart era. I must say that's the exact same question I was about to ask as well, Mario. <laughs> <laughs> the SMC refers to the coating. I am not an expert on lens coatings, but generally, like when you look at other lines, like uh, the Minolta Rockors, the the Nippon Kugaku Nikors, generally the later coatings are seen as superior. You know, they could they could help marginally improve contrast, uh, slightly better color rendition. Uh, but take away the coating. If you're just talking about the glass, I'm going to go with no. I do not think anybody can tell you with proof other than just opinion that a Azahi Takumar SMC in K-mount is optically better. Because we've, we've, we glowed repeatedly uh, in episode 38 about the screw mount Pentax lenses, and they're excellent. So if you're asking optically, I'm going to go with I doubt it. Well, I will say that the the last time that I was on the Classic Lenses podcast, which has been a few years now, I asked Johnny the same exact question. And his take was that, no, there really was no difference in the formula. Uh, he just preferred like the form factor on the screw mount lenses because they tended to be a little bit more compact. And then the only thing to keep in mind as you get your new camera is that there were several iterations of the K-mount. So there's the the Pentax M, which are the manual lenses. Then there's the Dash A, which are for the aperture priority, right, Paul? Dash yes. A. And mm -hmm. then there were the later autofocus lenses. So curiously, the later cameras can use all the lenses. The earlier cameras can use the first two. So like I was just shooting a Pentax A on my MX and it just worked perfectly fine. Yeah. yeah. This K1000, the K1000 I have here actually has an A lens on it for some yeah. reason. I don't know why, but it, it me with that lens. If, but if you try to take one of the autofocus lenses and put it on one of the manual cameras, no go. Yeah. My opinion is that the, the screw mount lenses are far better built than any K mount lens. I mean, if you just take just the, built, you mean build quality, right? Build quality. The build yeah. quality is, is much better. You rarely find a through a screw mount lens with uh with loose elements, you'll see them a lot of times with dinged filter ring because they are so much heavier that uh, when you gravity check one of the thread mount lenses, you are going to get a dented ring. Whereas with some of the K-mount lenses, they're so lightweight, you can drop them to get yeah. away with it. Build quality, there's more use of plastics in the K-mount lenses. Um, but it's, again, I, I, I keep going back to, to the Nikors, but you know, it's like the Series E versus the AI lenses. Optically, you're not really going to see a difference, but the Series E lenses use a little bit more plastic, a little bit more light uh, weight saving materials, similar to the the K mount, the K mount Pentax lenses. Um, so it's plausible that you could get one of these, like Paul said, that's loose. I mean, I could wiggle the aperture ring a little bit. I mean, there's a tiny bit of play in mine. It's certainly nothing that's going to affect performance at all, but I don't think you'll ever see a difference. Where you will, Mario, have a problem with that KX is you'll only be able to do stop down metering. Okay. because you know the pin that a screw mount lens has to stop it down the k-mount cameras do not have that so you'll have to use the lever on the lens itself because right. KX, i don't believe the kx might have had a depth of field preview but it's got to stop down it has to stop down meter there is no linkage so yeah right. you, you've got to stop down mario my, one big deal though if you can do it when you go to find adapters 
try mm. like crazy to find the Pentax brand. I ended up ordering the, uh, I, it was an original Pentax adapter. Okay. Um, and in great condition. So I'm, I'm hoping that that's the right one. Well, if, <laughs> it's, it's, a, work fine. if it's a Pentax brand, it's going to be fine. But there are a lot of aftermarket brands that were uh, private labels and they were not as precisely made. And they were sometimes extremely hard to get out of the camera. Oh, okay. When you take the lens off, you could unscrew the lens, but it would not match. It would not hold to the body. So you'd wind up with the body off the, the, the lens off the body, but the adapter would be stuck inside. And they gave you a little tool that came in the, the little green bag uh, with it. And that tool matched into the slots on the adapter so you could unscrew it. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to, to using the, the camera with the adapter because I do love my, uh, you know, the old Takamars. Like all of you said, the build quality is just fantastic. The focus is just so smooth and the optics are just beautiful. So I'm just hoping that it will all work together. <laughs> For your first actual K-mount lens, I would, to the top of that list, definitely look for that 40 millimeter. People are aware of it. The prices of them are going up so that you're not going to find it for a bargain. But I mean, you could find the 50 F2s all day long. I mean, these things are like from Japan, you can get them in bulk. Uh, you could find them attached. If you want to buy one of these lenses, just find another K-mount body. One will probably be attached to it, like an ME. The 1.4 is nice. The 51 yeah. is nice. The 1.4 is one of the best lenses I think they ever made. Yeah, it's, it's a really, really? Nice That's high praise. That's a great K-mount lens. Yeah, the, the the forty the 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 digital the full frame guys have really gloomed onto that that forty, and the prices have, have, have tripled in the last three years. But keep in mind, Pentax DSLRs still use the K mount. So while I don't think the Pentax digital SLRs ever got anywhere close to popular in terms of like you know Nikon, Canon, even Sony. But the fact that that lens was was you know interchangeable from back then till now, I think kind of, you know, added to the appeal to them. It looks most amusing on my K1 because it looks like a lens cap on the K1. It's a pinhole lens. If someone was buying a K1000 for the first time, say a new student and, and so on, and that came with the 50 uh, F2, I've got the SMC Pentax M here on the K1000. Is that a, a reasonable lens or is that going to throw, throw that's people no, off? That's a, it's a great okay. lens. Yeah. I mean, if you can get a 51.4 for reasonably cheap, definitely go for it. But if you already have the 50 F2, I don't know that I would spend the money just to get one extra stop. So I'd be better off just using this. And then if I wanted oh, the yeah. 1.4, just stick on my M42 version. Sure. Okay. You'll stumble over one. You'll, I mean, you'll find them, you know, but I, there is absolutely nothing to be ashamed of with the 50 F2. I mean, this is, it's a great lens. I live here in East Tennessee, which is the home of, uh, the man's name escapes me who uh, repairs Pentax. Uh, Eric, is it Eric Henderson? Yes, thank you, Eric. He lives about 15 miles away from me. Oh. And uh, I've taken a few his way, and I actually have had a couple that, uh, that even he couldn't repair. So he might have a few extra lenses sitting around because I know that I left them behind. He won't do the LXs anymore, right? No, no and he doesn't really like to do the MXs anymore because of his eyesight. Oh, okay. Let me sort of backtrack. So if the MX was kind of like a backup professional camera, and then in the future, they had the LX, which was their attempt to do like a Nikon, maybe F3, F4. Yeah. 
Um, no, the F3. The 6.7, 6x7 came out in 69. So that was actually before the K1000. So was the 6x7 an attempt? Was it seen as a professional camera? I mean, it's a studio camera. Uh, it, was it seen as like a, a legitimate pro camera at the time? Was it a was it a competitor to the Hasselblad or to the other uh, medium format cameras? It, it was a very popular wedding camera. You know, I never I never saw it as a wedding camera, Larry, because it was a, it wasn't a leaf shutter. You know, you got a focal plane shutter, so you're sinking flash at a thirtieth of a second. Didn't they have one? They did have a le- one leaf shutter lens, but it was very clunky to use. The other end of that, the other question there is. It was really, really noisy. It was loud. Very loud. Very loud. To shoot a wedding with it would be... I have a funny uh, Pentax 6-7 noisy shutter story. A friend of mine shot our wedding, my, my wife and my wedding. We were still married. And uh, I knew that camera, and I knew that it had a 10-city jam. And when we kissed, I heard it jam. I held on to my wife, and she's in the, she's in the balcony. So I, I'm squeezing her, holding this kiss until <laughs> I hear the uh, shutter clear. I hear an exposure and then I hear another exposure just in case <laughs> so that we'd get that picture. And then we walked down the aisle and my wife says, oh, that's so sweet. I said, yeah, Owen's camera jammed. That was the first <laughs> argument we had as a married couple. <laughs> a couple of days ago, Bob Rodoloni came over to my house. Um, I've known him for what, three and a half years and he's never been over here before. Uh, so we could talk a little more about that later. But for a brief moment, we were having a competition to see which camera had the loudest shutter. I don't have a Pentax 6.7, but um, we decided that the Bronica S2 has the loudest shutter of, of what I have. So ha- does anybody here know if the Pentax is louder than the Bronica or are they about the same? Yeah, I think it's louder. It's a larger, it's a larger, <laughs> it's a larger mirror. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. It's noisy and it's an instant return mirror. So when it slaps, it really slaps. You can hear it in the copy. back of a big bag. Here it is. If you want to hear yeah. it. But you asked about the market for the six by seven. It was really commercial photographers. Yes, it was. Uh, because they had they had a good lens selection of wide angles. You got a, a wide angle, don't you, Theo? Or well, Anthony? I, I've I've got a loaner. A friend from Gainesville has has graciously loaned me his six by seven, and I've been you know shooting it just to get a feel for it. And I've got the thirty five millimeter f four five, which is the fisheye, uh-huh. and it's I guess that's equivalent of maybe a fifteen. Um, Maybe a little bit more. It's 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 got more curvature to it than my 15 for the Pentax has. For the wow. It's 180 degrees, I yeah. think. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and and that's that is a that's an awesome lens. Though. Well, I, mean, I just discovered as I was getting ready to take it off, I just realized that it has all of the filters built into the to the lens yes, with a, with a little rotating uh, ring on mm-hmm. the front, so you can go from the the clear UV filter all the way down to a dark red. Uh, so at the beginning of, of the intro, I was out taking film out of the, uh, the wash. And I just went and shot just a quick roll of, of, of Ilford SFX, uh, with the dark red filter, just to see how much uh, infrared I could get out of it. It was really cool having that feature though, because there's no way you're going to get a filter on the front of that lens. No, no, but that, that camera was, uh, that was actually the first version of those. I remember when they first came into the U S they, they did not have, for some reason, they didn't have very good quality control. And there was a lot of light leaks. And I think it was because the back didn't quite uh, latch tight enough. But once they got it done, it was a great camera. I mean, it, it was, had a lot of lens capabilities. The, the metering was good on it. Uh, there was just no downside to the camera except for the weight and the noise. Well, you know, I've been a Nikon user for 55 years, right? But I once had a complete 
Pentax 6.7 system. I had everything from the fisheye all the way up to the 600 F4, which had a front element like this. But anyway, <laughs> I loved that camera. Unfortunately, arthritis destroyed my knees and my back, so I couldn't carry the thing anymore. So I had to eventually get rid of it. But the thing is, I can remember, and I've used Nikkor lenses for all those years, which are smooth lenses. However, the smoothest lenses I've ever used, the smoothest focusing lenses I've ever used were the Pentax 6.7 lenses. They were like butter. They were gorgeous. That's the best thing I think Pentax ever made was a 6.7 system. The optics were fantastic. They really were. You're were right, sharp. Bob. That, the, the dampening on those lenses, when you when you turn them to focus it, you just you get instant feedback. Yeah, it's gorgeous. It's yeah, gorgeous. it's just smooth as smooth as can be. The resolving power on those lenses. I mean, the, I'm getting really beautiful negatives out of it. But honestly, as a using as a as a user, it's just as fussy as using the Kodak Metalist. Well, yeah, of course it is. It's not. I mean, it wasn't made to be an automatic camera. It's 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 a mechanical camera. Yes, it just. I'd be interested to. You've recently been shooting with the RB67 as well, haven't you, Anthony? So yeah, yeah. The, yeah. the Mamiya. They're probably the two comparisons I'd be interested in because I've, I've not short, shot the Pentax 6.7. So how would you sort of compare those two cameras against each other? Of the two, I much prefer the 6.7. I've right. just, okay. I've, I've never really, and actually it's kind of funny because you say that because the other camera I, I had out today, in addition to the 6.7, was my Mamiya 6.45. And it feels like a brownie box camera compared to... Uh, the Pentax. The nice thing about the Pentax is that you use it just like you would a regular 35 millimeter camera. So it's eye level, but you were, everybody's used to that. And I, it just, just went natural for me to pick that up and shoot with it. I had no problems at all, except for the weight. <laughs> I'll second that. Like RB67 versus the Pentax. The Pentax has something special about it. I mean, the RB has a lot of great things. I do love it, but the, the Pentax is special. The one thing about the RB, of course, is the rotating back. I do use yeah. that. I do appreciate that feature. But the, the special factor goes to the Pentax by a little but bit. They're just so different. I mean, they're like not yes. they're so yeah. very different. The RB, uh, RB seems to me to be more of a studio camera than, than the 6.7 is. The 6.7, you know, I'm not a studio photographer. I use the 6.7. I used to go all around. Like I say, the weight just got to me. But you could shoot all over with that thing. The only thing you right. couldn't shoot very well was sports. Mm. So it's the couldn't mobility that's the, the big difference, basically, from what from from what I'm understanding there. You you want a padded strap if you're going to take that. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> seven out in, the, in the field. I, I I did about three miles with it today on a trail through the swamp. Exactly. <laughs> holding up a, a padded strap. So I did about three miles and on a swamp trail today. And my my back was feeling it at the end of the end of the. You're going to get curvature of the spine. You keep that up. Yeah. Don't fall in. Yeah. <laughs> While we were talking, uh, we had another person join. I'm seeing Marcy Merrill. Uh, Marcy is from Junk Store Cameras. She is the OG film photography blogger. Is Do I have that right, Marcy? <laughs> Thanks. Hey, I just noticed it was on. And so I saw what you were talking about. So I grabbed this Spotmatic just to, you know, there went the lens cap, but you know, <laughs> to be appropriate here. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So your, your site, real quick, I don't mean to jump subtopics here, but how long have, has Junk Store Cameras been on? been up 25 years Holy 25 years it's, it shows its age though it really does yeah yeah yeah, yeah. but anyway yeah so it, it, it's fun to be here well welcome thanks for coming uh so i just want to introduce you while you were there mike wasn't there a, a soviet came out camera a couple of them um i have i've been shooting it with mixed results but uh the elmaz series of cameras they had the 101 102 103 and 104 
the 103 is the only one that was produced in any amount of, um, I think like 9,000 of them were made, but the other kinds were like barely made it past the prototype stage. But um, it's a, it's an SLR. A lot of people say it's a Soviet version of the Nikon F2. It's certainly heavy. It was designed, I guess, for the professional market. It does have an interchangeable prism or viewfinder, I should say. So you can take, and I'm struggling getting it off, but it does come off. Just trust me on this. You can remove the viewfinder. It uses a K-mount. Uh, it's fully mechanical, one through 1,000 speed. Does have, they did come up with um, a flash port that goes around the rewind knob, similar to how Nikon did it. It does have a motor drive coupling. I don't know that they ever made a motor drive coupling for it, but um, it does use the K-mount. So, I mean, you could take, here's an Almaz 103. I can pull the lens off and then um, here's my Takamar 50 F2. I can mount this lens to the Soviet camera. So um, this one uses the K-mount and I actually think, and I don't remember when they did this, but eventually the Zenits did switch to the K-mount too at some point. Was there ever a K-mount Helios? Maybe. Where's Vlad when you need him? Yeah, I don't know. This lens is, it's branded Lomo. It's a 518. I don't know if it's a copy of anything else. I mean, it feels heavy. I mean, I, I, you know, just based off of tactile, looking at the lens coating, uh, I did shoot a roll through this already and I optically, it was excellent. So um, this lens that came on the Almaz 103 is certainly good. There's a Helios 44K-4, which is a K-mount okay. native. So that would have been on one of the very late Zenits. Eventually, the Zenits did abandon the M42 mount, and they switched to the K-mount too. So yeah, the Almaz series, the later Zenits, and um, the only other Japanese mount Soviet camera were the Kiev, I think the 19, used the, the Nikon F mount. So some of the Soviet cameras eventually, they, they wisened up and stopped releasing their own proprietary lens mounts because a lot of the proprietary Soviet lenses almost never went anywhere. The start had a, a lens mount that was unique to itself and they never made another lens for it. So at some point, maybe in the 80s, I don't know a lot of how easy it was to get stuff in and out of the Soviet Union, but I imagine by the 80s, they were kind of starting to be able to get stuff from Japan. Because I know like in the 50s and 60s, there was nothing like they weren't aware of Japanese cameras at all. There was either the, the domestic Soviet cameras or the Germans. But um, I, I think that probably explains why you started to see the K-mount lenses in the Soviet Union at that time. But it's certainly a nice camera. I mean, there's a lot of third party uh, other brands that use the K-mounts, too. You'll find those lenses and they're all pretty interchangeable. I have a question. Why is it that the K-mount? became almost generic overnight. In other words, I've never seen a new mount all of a sudden adopted by so many other different brands. Anybody know, did they, did they, did they license it out that way or was they, the, the mount stolen? No, I think they licensed it because they? They, if you look at it, the way it worked was they came out with it and then Rico was very close behind them. Right behind and them, then yeah. Chenon was very close behind them and uh, uh, GAF. Yes. In this in this country, there was a GAF that had the uh, the thread mount. In Europe, there was uh, the Revell cameras, a review camera. Review, review, yeah. yeah. Photoquell. Review and and several, yeah, Photoquell. And uh, there were some others too. At the end, the Alpa had the, uh, didn't the Alpa have uh, came out? They did. The Vitar SLRs had the came out. The Vitar SLRs had the came out. 
Yes, of course. And, yep, yep. The reason I ask is, you know, Nikon spent a lot of time defending their came their mount. It, they wouldn't allow you to use their mount, you know. So I'm, I was always surprised how quickly everybody started to use the K mount. Well, if you'll remember when when Vivitar started making when they made M42 mount lenses on the box, it didn't say M42. It said Universal. Universal, right? Yep. So the same thing. It just then. The K mount became the universal mount. But Pentax would have had to had to license them to do that, wouldn't they? I'm not sure they patented the K mount. May not have. They may yeah, not have. I don't think they did. Uh, otherwise, why? If they had, they were. It was crazy for them to, to let other people do. Well, it. I don't know. You know, right. sometimes having being a smaller pay, a piece of a bigger market is handier. Look at VHS rather than data, you know. Yeah. Sometimes you can make more money by being a, a fish in a bigger pond. You know, as, as long as we were talking about, you know, the sort of the professional side of Pentax, I'm, I'm wondering if anybody here on our esteemed panel has an opinion about the Pentax 110 and the 110 Super. I had one for six <laughs> wonderful months and I loved it. Yes. <laughs> I got a whole stack of them. Yeah, I, I bet I've had 10 of them in the last year, but only one Super. I only had one. Super. I only have one super. Also, I only have one super. You know, a lot of one tens, auto one tens, and most of them are in the kit with the, all the lenses. The you know, attaché case, aluminum case. Yep, all the whole work. The whole thing. It's got all the filters, all all the filters, all the lenses, everything in the under the sun. My uncle, who's an Air Force Colonel, got me one at a, P, at a PX, and uh, I used it and loved it, and then I gave it back to him. It's a nice little camera, it really is. It's very well made, and it works. It works well. It was getting in a plane. You got a winder for it. You got a flash unit for it. You got a bunch of lenses, even a zoom. Was it the best 110? Probably. It was the fastest. Yeah, I would, I would I say think, so. I think it's the easiest to handle. I don't yeah. know. I, I'd fight with you over that. I think that Canon 110 ED oh, yeah. might, oh, okay. might be the best. I mean, it, it wasn't as important. It's a rangefinder with an F2 lens, so it's pretty fast. It's yeah. really good, yeah. But it doesn't, hmm. it doesn't have interchangeable lenses, so no. it's not really fair to compare the two, but... That with the Pentax 110 was really a nice camera. Really and the is. lenses on the front were excellent lenses. A lot of people today are using them on mirrorless APS uh, C. Uh, they, they don't have a diaphragm. They're, uh, the the right. shutter was the aperture. Right. Mm -hmm. They're all 2.8s, every one of them. Well, I, I have to say that the Minox 110 is my favorite so far. Is it? Well, you got one that works. Oh, no, no, the, the Minox worked every time. <laughs> it, was the, it was the Roleye 110 that I think I tried six of them. Oh, that's right. It was the roller that worked, and didn't have did not have a single one that worked. Uh, they're all brand new in the box, but the, the Minox has a rangefinder on it. It's really a, it's got the barn doors on the front. It's super tiny. Uh, it's it's a really it's you don't see them. They're fairly rare, uh, but I also got the best quality out of the Minox. Of I think I've shot four or five one tens. I'm not up there with Mark, but uh, it's been my favorite so far. But I really, I'm, I'm, I'm really itching to get my hand on a on a, on a Pentax 110 because I've never even held one. Was the Pentax uh, 110 more like an automatic camera, or did it have manual control? Was aperture? It was aperture priority, or yeah, yeah. it was uh, aperture priority only. Okay. And what's the difference between the regular and the super? That's I don't know that. I, you I can't know, remember. I can't either, and, and I meant to look it up, and I forgot. Should look at mine here and see, but it doesn't say anything on the box about what's different about it. But didn't one of them come in green? I had one in maroon. There's also a maroon one. Externally, they look about the same. They might have improved the rapid wind lever. I don't know. It's the same motor and everything, so there's nothing different that way. Yeah, the Super has a timer with an indicator LED on the front, a shutter lock, and a button for backlight compensation. Okay, is that what it yeah. is? Okay. 
not not really deal breakers <laughs> for any of those things, I wouldn't think. It's a really a very handy camera to use. And when you get that little winder on it, this thing here, it's actually even easier to use when you have the winder mounted on it. Because this is really kind of small. If you have big hands, you'd have trouble with this camera. Yeah, the way they designed that winder, it's got that vertical uh, drop yeah. on the front of it, on the yeah. bottom, that really makes it a nice handle. But they are delicate, these winders. I've, I've had four of them, only two of them work. And uh, I guess this is one of the, this is the Achilles heel of the whole system is this winder. You know, the thing I had the problem with, with that winder was they, people would leave the batteries in them and the batteries, yeah. were broke. but the, the, also the latch, the latch. I'm just going to say this latch on the end for the battery. Yeah, yeah. It's very weak. And I've had a couple of them that came to me broken that way. Same thing was true on the MX winder or yeah. MX motor, what um, winder, I guess you'd really call it. Anthony brought up the LX. Has anybody ever shot with an LX? Anybody here? I have. Yeah, it's um in many ways does compare favorably to the F3. It's got a lot of the same features. There's a few pieces of technology it has that the M3 doesn't or the F3 doesn't. Um, one thing that it can do is it it can do um it's it's a electromagnetic shutter similar to the F3 in that it's mostly electronically controlled, but it can shoot at slower speeds mechanically, which is opposite of some other cameras where usually you can only shoot the faster speeds mechanically, but you do get a little bit more flexibility in terms of mechanical speeds. Mine was a loner, so I don't have it in front of me. It does favor comparably, you know, uses the same great lenses, but the one knock against those is that they just haven't held up quite as well. You know, we talked about the F3 before. It's real biggest weakness that have come to light since then is the little LED in the display. Uh, but the, um, and I, I don't know the specifics of it. Someone will probably know listening to the show, but the LX is suffer from some internal seals that degrade and it requires like a complete teardown of the camera to replace um, the electronics have started to show their age too so a lot of times when you get an lx it'll have questionable operation you know if it does work you might get the jumpy meter and i don't think anybody will fix them you know that we were talking about eric henderson he won't even touch them i don't know of anybody else who will touch the lx's because they're extremely electronically complicated. Plus, like the F3, it was in production for a very long time. Uh, it came out in 80. I want to say they discontinued it in 2001. Yeah, it was out for a long time. In Dayton, the uh, the Dayton newspaper was, th those guys were all customers of mine and friends. And they, they everybody shot Nikon except for one guy who shot an LX. And and my favorite LX story was, he, they we had a local university that... Uh, uh, flooded basement and so they're down there's no power in the building and they're down walking around in the basement and about three feet of water which is okay that's only like waist deep for for him but there were some planters that were built into the floor and all the dirt and the, the mulch had washed out of those planters he stepped into a four-foot hole <laughs> so he steps into a four-foot hole and he's got a camera around his neck and the Pentax goes underwater and, and uh, he gets it up above water. He dries it off, opens it up. The film is completely dry. <laughs> One really cool feature of the LX is the exposure counter is directly coupled to the position of the film. So as you advance it, it goes up. But as you rewind it, it goes back down. So in theory, if you were really big on double exposures and you wanted to go back like two exposures and shoot an exposure on top of another one, you can actually rewind the film and the exposure counter will go backwards. 
and it'll tell you exactly where you're on um, at on the roll. Believe me, that's nothing I would do, but that is kind of a neat little feature. And I did note, I'm looking at my um, my review for it. It does have a titanium shutter too, which is which is you know kind of like gives it a little bit more props for the for the pros but um it's it's nice in terms of size slightly smaller than the f3 which was pretty impressive considering the f3 was quite a bit smaller than the f2 i think that uh, like like you noted a lot of people who were already nikon fans probably weren't going to switch but if you were looking for something new and maybe you were you were uh, impressed with gadgets and a long list of features the lx was probably appealing to a lot of people or if you came out of college with all your came out lenses that you bought at the They also on the LX also had interchangeable finders that were very advanced for what, uh, what they did. They had a a finder base that you could interchange other finders like rotating finders, uh, stove pipes. And since the meter was in the body, you would still have the meter in the camera. And the, uh, the prisms had a hot shoe on it. Unlike the F3, which required the shoe over the rewind crank. So that was, I think, a first. Um, I might not be right on that, but at least compared to the F3, if you prefer just a typical flash hot shoe, the LX with the interchangeable prisms, you could just attach a flash to the prism without a special adapter. So it seems like after the LX and after the K1000, Pentax went through a period of, of kind of like lost in the wasteland of lots of, of plastic bodied, fully automated SLRs. Were there any of those that were notable? Any of those that are like good values now? I don't think so. I mean, the the cameras really weren't that bad. They were they were just me twos. Um, this is a Pentax A3, which uh, is a, a program camera that I don't believe I'd have to look at it. I don't think it has aperture priority or full manual. I think it's strictly a, an automatic camera. But they they were they were just like me too. This one actually has batteries in it. It does not. It does give you the shutter speed readout in the body, which is a good thing. But uh, I don't think it gives you any other control. Didn't they target the amateur market though? Because I mean, everywhere you go, any any uh, thrift shop you walk into, you'll invariably see an MZ50 sitting there. You know, lonely someone to pick it up and buy it uh, for about ten bucks. So is is that? I mean, did did they just go for mass? market rather than uh, the more professional customer base? That would be my guess. I really think they were lost in that period of time. They're, I don't know where their market was. It had to be the discount houses because uh, not a lot of pro stores were carrying them. And, you know, they had the, their first automatic autofocus camera was the SF1, which was really a clunker. I mean, it, it uh, was very slow to focus. Yeah. Olympus really struggled with that market too. Um, it was very difficult for some of these Japanese companies to transition to the electronic autofocus era. I mean, obviously, you know, we know uh, Minolta had the uh, the Maxim 7000, which they beat, you know, the other companies to the market. I believe that Minolta and Pentax both had the dream of, you know, competing with Canon and Nikon and Pentax just gave up that dream sooner because um, Minolta's Maxim made them believe they could. If you look at the history of, of the Pentax SLRs, I mean, they never really aimed for the top of the market. The LX was an anomaly. They did. I'm looking it up here because I know my friend Adam has one. It, around 2000, 2001, they released an autofocus body called the MSZ or MZS. The MZS was kind of an 
a half-hearted attempt at making a semi-pro camera. It had a magnesium body, like every electronic feature you could possibly need. It has kind of a funky redesigned top plate, but you know, they, they didn't sell well. You look at any time these companies really tried to, to elevate them. There were, there was like a barrier between consumer and professional that was almost impossible to cross over to Nikon did it. Nippon did it. Canon eventually did it. Minolta tried. They tried to. And, on, and the, the Minolta X1, XM, whatever they were called, were, were good cameras. I mean, they had some questionable decisions on them. But uh, I tried to. Who did? Topcon. Topcon, I, yeah. Topcon. But trying to get to that pro market was prohibitive. And, and I think contributing to that too is once you sold to a pro photographer, they would usually stay in that system. Like guys weren't really jumping back and forth between Nikon and Canon. Once you had a system, you stayed with it. So to the, the entrance point into anything higher than consumer was prohibitive. But keep in mind that prior to the late 70s, if you were an, an amateur photographer, you weren't shooting an SLR, right? And finally, the era of autofocus, auto exposure sort of opened up a whole new segment that really didn't exist before. So companies like Olympus, probably Minolta, definitely Pentax, they said, hey, this is where we want to compete. This is where we could make some money. But as we've seen too, without the history of camera companies, there's only so many different fish that can swim in the same pond, you know? And it just, it, it, it had to get to a point where some of these companies had to fail. People with Nikon and, and Canon, they shot for the New York Times and National Geographic, but there were a lot of professional photographers working for the Maryville Daily Times and the sure. and the Dayton. They were shooting Minolta's and Pentaxes and sure. K1000. So they, I mean, they weren't, it wasn't that no professionals were using this, just that you didn't, they didn't end up on the covers of prestigious papers and magazines. Once the photo is made, no one's going to read the Sunday Times like, yep, this was shot with an icon. You know, right. the, the difference was, which we've spoken about many times before, uh, in the 70s, Olympus tried to get into the pro market. And while their cameras were really well built and they worked really, really well, they just could not handle the, the true photojournalists. You know, the guys that are going across... Uh, overseas, shooting wars, going to the desert, going to Antarctica. Uh, you know, there's a reason people stuck with the brands that they did because they did hold up. And, you know, you look at, I have, where the hell is it? I have, I've had two autofocus Pentax cameras. This one's called a PZ1. This one's called a Z1P. They're broken. They're, they don't work. I've got a, uh, a, a ZX50 that came as part of a a Jim Dine dental setup. So it had the, uh, had a really beautiful 105 macro lens, but with the ring flash, but that camera, I mean, it just, it feels like any of the mid nineties, like Canon EOS plastic wouldn't trust it really in this day and age to do much more than, you know, be a casual take to the beach kind of a camera, nothing I'd really want to rely upon. But, but did the focus in the 90s change a little bit for some of these companies? Because if you look at um, Pentax and Olympus to and Minolta, they had a huge range of compact cameras that were coming out at the time. You know, the autofocus, the travels, they, they just sold everywhere. Um, they're a bit of a cash cow in that respect because, you know, everybody was taking cameras suddenly to sure. travel um, and they wanted the, the quick snapshots and uh, the easy, uh, unobtrusive camera. 
So, I mean, they, they had a, a line of SPOs, which, uh, to be fair, I mean, I picked up a few of those, and they just work. They work great. I mean, they're not the fastest thing. They're, they're sometimes a little bit noisy, but they do the job quite well. I can imagine selling lots of those would be making lots of money. I had two of the SBOs. I had the uh, 140V and the 115V. Uh, they were fine. You know, I, I actually just gave them to friends who wanted point and shoots because that's not really my bag. Uh, but I did run test rolls through both of them. And, you know, they performed as well as any other of that generation point and shoot. The point shoot cameras were to SLRs what the phone is to a digital SLR. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, they basically replaced them because they were so much, so convenient. You know, it was the old thing about, you know, you could stick it in your pocket and go out for the day with your kids and you didn't have to haul around your big SLR camera. Um, But the Pentaxes were excellent cameras. Thinking about the um, point and shoots of the nineties and eighties and all that. uh, One of my, it's not a Pentax, but one of my favorite point and shoots of that era is the Nikon action touch. A waterproof camera. I love the fact that it's a fixed focus length or focal length. Uh, did Pentax ever make any uh, fixed focal length uh, point and shoots? I've got one right here, actually. It's the PC35. Oh. Um, this one's the date version, AF. Yeah, Mike's got one there. I've actually taken the the the, wind, the auto wind off mine because it's a bit noisy. It basically fits on top and, and basically just winds it on for you. And this nice, quiet little camera. Um, I haven't had any of my film developed yet on it uh, because it's Christmas, my lab's closed and I don't develop my own film, but um, it, um, but it operates really nicely. Um, I really like it. It's, it's, it's so small. Um, it's 35 millimeter F 2.8 and, and you can find them at reasonable prices. And I like, one of the things I really like about this is because a lot of people that go into compacts, one of the, the, the issues they find is the uh, flash turns on automatically uh, in a lot of them. This one, it doesn't turn on until you tell it that you want to use flash uh, with a, a lever down the bottom. So that way you're not you're not sort of constantly fighting to turn the flash off. What was that again? The PC35 uh, AF. Well, thanks. So, uh, and yeah, it seems like a really well-made camera. Um, I'm, I'm, it's an early autofocus. So it's, it, it's one of those that sort of points to you and tells you whether you're... You're, you're taking a picture of a person, yeah. people, or mountains. Um, I think it's mountains. I can't remember. But um, it's uh, it's yeah, it's reasonably made. It works nicely. It's got a self-timer. It's got a backlight button on the top. So if you've got shooting in the backlight, you can you, you adjust it by one and a half uh, stops. And, um, and this one's got the date feature on the back too, which goes up to 2019. So, uh, so you, you, you could be living in the past if you like. I have one too. And, you know, I'm echoing what, what Theo says. It's, it's a pretty nice camera. I got excellent images from mine. Mine has the optional motor winder for it, which how it works is it actually, there's a gear and it just turns the, the motor winder knob. Yeah. Automatically. But Theo pointed out, it's really loud. It's like, <laughs> every time you fire the shutter as it's grinding away at the camera. So it's certainly not discreet, but it does with it mounted. It gives you kind of a grip, like a hand grip that the, the camera without it doesn't have. So um, yeah, I, I agree. This is, this would be my vote for my favorite fixed lens, autofocus, Pentax point and shoot. So, um, so yeah, they, they basically jumped into the, the compact market, you know, both feet are, 
I, I reckon. So when we talk about Pentax going to the pro market, I'm not sure their focus was even there. Yeah, it's, uh, it's hard to tell, you know? Yeah. I mean, I just, I think they were just looking to, to make money, right? You know, while you guys were talking, I attempted to find answers to some questions that came up unsuccessfully, which was why the K-mount initially became kind of a generic mount. I found a couple articles from the early 70s when the K-mount was released. And I, I quickly browsed through them while you guys were talking. And there was nothing mentioned at all about them being like an OEM kind of provider. I just think that perhaps Pentax was one of the biggest names in the screw mount SLRs. I mean, they were still very popular and there were a lot of companies making screw mount lenses. So it stands to reason that when they switched to their own bayonet mount, some of the other companies sort of just followed suit. That that would be my best guess. But it, it from at least what I was able to read while you guys were talking, I did not find um, anything indicating that Azahi intentionally tried to be, you know, third party. But if you think about it, it actually helped them. You know, the more companies releasing lenses in their mount, in a way, kind of opens up the door to more potential customers. Because if you were, correct me if I'm wrong, Paul, but if you were in a camera store in, let's say, 1984, and you were looking for a, a good mid-range SLR, and you were considering an, uh, a Pentax, there might be a Shenon that was slightly cheaper, right? Is that correct? Rico or a Shenon, yeah. for sure. Absolutely. You said in a previous episode that store owners loved Ricos because they had a huge markup on it, right? Well, not there wasn't a huge markup. They could make anything. The problem in in with with name brand cameras back in that time frame was like Canon, uh, Nikon, Minolta. A dealer had to sell it at actual dealer cost. That's because right. that's what the New York Mailer houses sold it. Right. So you would sell it at dealer cost. You would maybe get five or six percent on the back end from the manufacturer. You could try to sell a filter, uh, you know, a gadget bag, uh, a case, ready case. Yeah, ready case, all that stuff. And the Rico then was not in those distribution channels. You would have the opportunity to make a little bit more money on. I'm it. feeling so guilty now. But for all those cameras that I bought from B&H. Well, you know, the thing, the, the, the thing that allowed B&H to be so successful over the years was that they did not have to charge sales tax. Yeah. A local dealer would sell the same, would sell the same camera at the same price, but they were six to 7% more expensive because of the sales tax. And that was a lot of money back then, back yeah. in that time frame. So Marcy, uh, I'm going to call on you here. Um, you showed us your Spotmatic you had there too. Did you ever get into Pentaxes uh, in, in the 80s or 90s or anything? Oh, yeah. I had a K1000 just like everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, in the 80s, I took it to Africa. It was like my, I had, I think I had three lenses. I don't exactly remember what they were. I know there's a 50 and a, some kind of zoom, but yeah, it was uh, easy. <laughs> so travel the world with you then huh there you go well went to africa <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good though <laughs> I remember what i did with it i i must have traded it at one time but i kind of missed it i thought i had a k1000 here that's what i was gonna grab out tonight but i guess i can't find it or i don't yeah marcy sold me a camera a while ago she said she went to africa to shoot some some wildlife photos but i want to know if did you use the the national geographic binoculars camera um no that's been a lot of places though geez did i take that someplace far away this? 
Yeah. Oh yeah. I remember that. Yeah. So look at this. It's, it's 35 millimeter film Yeah. and you load 30, it's half frame, 35 millimeter. It's branded national geographic. And it's, it's basically plastic kids, children's binoculars with a fixed focus lens in the middle is actually the camera. But, uh, this takes some, some wild, I'll go on an African safari and get some pictures of giraffes and, uh, and lions with, with Marcy's oh, camera. That. Yeah, the, the binoculars aren't all that wonderful though, so. No. <laughs> I have a quick question, you know, uh, real recently, you know, we got the news that Pentax is wanting to get back into the film yeah. camera manufacturing. Uh, do you think that, well, first of all, do you think that there's, they're gonna be successful? And do you think, given that Nikon and Canon were geared more toward the professionals for, you know, many, many years, do you think Pentax is now going to possibly have a, you know, a leg up in the resurgence of analog photography? I think it will be a, a cool novelty camera that uh, some folks will buy, then it'll peter out. I'm with Larry on that one. I reckon there'll be a, a footnote in history yeah. uh, where yeah. uh, it'll become a very big collector's item in the future. I hope I'm wrong. I hope they really, right. really um, take the market by storm and suddenly everyone's buying Pentaxes and, and so much film that the prices start to become a bit, bit more tenable. But uh, I can't see them doing something cheap, which means you're already starting to move into the, the collectors or the Leica market. Right. And then that's a very small segment of the, of the market. I, I, what I'm thinking it's going to wind up being is another casino. Um, it'll be based on something that's already out there, like the casino cameras, which are very cheap to manufacture. It's just a question of what they add to it. But they, they do have the advantage of having Rico behind them because, uh, you know, Rico is, is not just a, Rico was never just a camera company. They were also an office products company. Yeah. So they had very deep pockets. Uh, they were an imaging company uh, beyond being just cameras. And and I think that could be something that uh, that that helps to to get the thing off the ground. But uh, you know, I just don't I don't understand it because there are so many used cameras out there today, selling at reasonable prices. Uh, there are people that still repair those cameras. I don't understand what the what they anticipate the market to be. I I wonder. You know, several months ago we had Jess on here, and she talked about the fact that she had heard that there was a group that had like taken over the uh, uh, intellectual property of the K1000. Uh, and she kind of dropped it at that and we never really followed up on it. And mm. I wonder if, if this is what that was. And if in fact, they're going to bring back like a metal bodied SLR as sort of a, like a legacy tribute to Pentax, you know, just sort of like the Nikon did with that last uh, rangefinder that was. Well, the M6 know, that's come back. Yeah. Cause they talked about, you know, if you watch the seven minute video that they posted, they talked about bringing back as many of the original engineers that they could find from their, uh, from their heyday. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if you all are wrong and they actually bring back um, a nice functional full manual uh, camera uh, that is going to be in the, like the $2,000 range. I don't think it's going to be you know, competing with the M6, uh, but I don't think it's going to be, uh, one of the plastic fantastics either. Would you go about, will you guys pay $2,000 for a K1000? No, nobody's going to pay $2,000 for a K1000. No, I don't know. But there would be a market for an M39 mount rangefinder camera, uh, like a Cosina, a Voigtlander, 
that if you could buy those cameras, if you could get those on the market to retail at $500 or less, there would be a huge market for them. I think a lot of it, I mean, really comes down to who's going to make the shutter, you know, because you look at all of the companies we're talking about, most of these companies did not make their own shutters. They were usually a Seiko yeah. or they were, you know, um, oh, Copal. Yeah, Copal, uh, Seiko, you know, for in Japan, you know, they or in Germany, they had their own shutters too. So for Pentax to come up with a new, well, I'm going to backtrack here. So the, the Foatlander, the M39, the, the Bessas, what, who, who mm-hmm. made the shutters on those? Do we know? They were a square shutter. So they were a Copal square shutter. Okay. But they were not metal. They were plastic okay. plates. Rico and Pendex are making shutters right now. Are they? For their digital cameras. I heard rumors that the um, the uh, Voigtlander Casinas, uh, those actually used a Chinese-made shutter. That it was the, the Phoenix Camera Company in Japan. I heard yeah. they made them. Yeah, I think okay. that's probably true. They were, they were just the, they, the design was the Copal Square. But they were not metal shutters, most of them. I think they were all plastic yeah. Uh, yeah. plates. Because they they were able to make them lighter weight. And that's okay. I mean, if if you're gonna make a, I mean, they're not gonna make anything with the durability of the classic cameras we're talking about here. I mean, if they make something, they don't have to think 30, 40, 50 years in the future. They just got to make something that they can sell today. Uh, and if it's a plastic bladed shutter from China, I guess that's better than nothing. And uh, well, and, and you know, they don't have to fire four four or five frames right, a second. No. The timing on them is the important thing, and the the lightweight shutter right. is actually an advantage uh, for the accuracy. Yeah. Clearly, there's people who can make shutters. Uh, the real question, going back to Pentax's design, is you know, of all the companies that could do it, I think they're one of them. You know, I mean, they only recently exited the market, so it's not like a company's coming back from the dead. You know, this isn't Yashica, which is really just some you know, third party that just bought the rights to the name and is going to release some garbage thing. I mean, it would be cool, but realistically, I think, Paul, you asked it, how much are we willing to spend? You know, I mean, I, I love film. Believe me, I want it to live on. I want there to be new cameras, you know, but I'm not going to spend two grand on a new film camera. I just, I can't. If you can buy a K1000 with a 50 millimeter F2 lens for $185, why would you want to spend five hundred right. or more dollars for the same thing yeah. uh, on a, on a new version of the same camera? It just doesn't make sense. Yeah. They they need to come up if they come up with something unique, something that that uh, an SLR film user would get behind and and jump on, yeah. like like I say, a range camera. Uh, and there are plenty of M thirty nine lenses out there, you know, at reasonable prices. It just makes more sense to me. There is, there is one argument, though, to say that if they came up with a K1000, but with the extras that... What was that Russian company that went broke that was trying to bring out a new SLR? And they were going to have, like... I know who you're talking about. It was, yeah. like, an old, um, like, Ihegi design or something they wanted to bring Exactly, back. exactly. But they were going to build in things like internet connections and, you know, and, and stuff like that. If you start adding those kind of features, you can start to say, okay... Yes, you might spend a bit more on a K1000 to have a modern with some modern features. I, I don't know what they would be or whether they'd be worth it. Let's think this out, though. Everybody, every time they've tried to have a digital version of a film camera, they've always put the sensor in the film plane, right? 
But what if you thought of it backwards? What if you had a 35 millimeter SLR, exactly how you would expect it to be, film gate, film goes in the back, normal pressure plate. You have the reflex mirror, but instead of a pentaprism, what if you put an EVF on that and the EVF was the sensor? So in theory, you could fire the shutter the reflex mirror would flip up, the shutter would open, exposing the film. But as right before the mirror looked up, the lights going up in the viewfinder, that's also taking your digital image. Yeah, those kind of things you could you could see that could that would work. be cheap, but people no. would be some people would be interested in buying right. that. Uh, if I don't know if I'd spend two grand, but that would interest me if they found a way to where you had a camera where you could. You could just not even choose to load film in it and fire it like a normal SLR. And instead of an, op you wouldn't have an optical viewfinder and that might kill some people, but you have a good EVF. Cause I'll, you know, I have the Nikon, the Z5 and the EV, the EVF on that is fantastic. You know, I, when EVFs first came out, I used to hate them. I was like, no, I want optical. I want optical. But once I saw like what Fuji's done with EVFs, what Nikon's done with the EVFs, they're very, very good. Plus you can get the overlays and all that other good stuff on there. So, you know, do something like that. And if you really want to go crazy, what was that new SLR that was going to come out that had interchangeable mounts that never went anywhere either. They were going to do that for a while where you could, where the mount itself was a plate and you could remove the plate and switch between screw mount, Nikon, whatever. I remember that. It had a Kickstarter project. Yeah, it never, it never went anywhere. But like... Yeah, it never went anywhere. But. I could see, like, if somebody wanted to come up with something new, because just to simply come up with a brand new film-only camera at a premium price, there's going to be a few early adopters that might buy it up front, but it's not going to compare to the to the, the mass market. But if you had a 35 millimeter SLR that with or without film in it, it was also a digital camera and you put the sensor in the prism, that I think would be cool. I think you'd have people who you could, you could it, it could operate totally film. It could be operate totally digital. Or what if every time you took a picture, you took both a film and a digital picture at the exact same time? You know, there, there'd be obviously a delay, but- That would be interesting. Now, now if Pentax is actually listening, because I did say they were going to, check with the, the community um right. i'd like to say send one to sydney i'll test it out for you i'm yeah. happy to, <laughs> to carry one around for you <laughs> didn't you mention though that pentax is uh gonna listen to the show and they're gonna you know we have they have to run everything by us right yes exactly <laughs> <laughs> i think it'd be interesting if uh pentax's you know desire to get back into the film market would spur some interest in other other camera companies to maybe think about venturing into it as well and maybe it'd be a knock-on effect of you know different yeah. technologies coming on to well in order to make know. that happen we all have to rush out and buy one we have to right <laughs> well and and honestly we're not doing the the innovative market a, a favor by continuing to buy old cameras they have to see that people are going to be willing to buy something new uh but you know it's mm -hmm. a chicken and the egg kind of thing you know and I, i'm happy to collect a lot more old cameras just pull them yeah. off the market uh, I'm, I'm happy to try that and not to be a downer but i mean look at fuji you know fuji is a company that very much was big in the film but they were also big in other things too and they've pretty much made it clear they, they don't have any interest or they have very little interest i should say in the film world you know so if a company like Fuji isn't investing in new cameras and they barely are doing anything with film anymore, you know, they make, they make their money in other industries. You know, Rico made their money in other industries. So many of these companies made their money elsewhere. Um, I hope it works. I really do. Cause I'd love, I'd love for there to be new stuff. I'd love to know that 50 years from now, 
there's still going to be a market for film. Fuji might have to backtrack on that because they've had a lot of trouble uh, keeping up with the demand for like the X100B oh, and some of the new cameras. They're like, I've heard they're almost a year behind on orders. So it would kind of behoove them to, I guess, focus a little more on the film market. Well, and not only that, they shot themselves in the foot because when they discontinued a lot of the things they did, they like destroyed it. Yeah. Like they, oh, they yeah, yeah. went like total nuclear on some of the, the assembly lines for or the, the, the processes for making some of their older films that when they decided to leave the market, they like, I, I think Cheyenne Morrison was mentioning that he was actually in touch with somebody in Japan about wanting to buy some of the old equipment or something. And they're like, no, we destroyed it. So even if they wanted to, it's like, they kind of have to reverse engineer and relearn it again. Isn't Fuji the largest analog camera maker in the world right now? If you include Instax. Yeah, I mean, that's what I mean. But take away Instax, then they're they're almost nothing. The target customer for Intax is what, like teenagers? Teenage girls, it's, yeah. That's what my daughter likes. You need to look at the tolerances they work with Instax as well. One of the big complaints about Instax is you cannot get a good Instax camera. And by that people mean, you know, a metal built or or something that's that's sturdy or yeah. shoots well or gives you controls. It's all automated. It's all they sort of play on the tolerances of the film as well, where right. it gives you that that Lomo look, so to speak. That so yeah. yeah. So I, I I would question, you know, them in terms of camera manufacturing in that respect. It it it's it's a great camera, it's a great thing for people to buy and, and use um they're, they're super fun to use but i mean if you start looking at one out here you start looking at that yeah you're not you're not gonna yeah that that, that doesn't even resemble a, a, yeah a good quality camera there's no way in my mind that fuji has not heard the desire for what you described theo a more capable instax obviously they have the instax wide which each one of those exposures is pretty close to six by nine. Is that, isn't that correct? So they had essentially a medium format instant camera and they chose to like abandon it. They know that they're selling these plastic cheap Instax cameras and they choose not to make something better. Now there could be a reason for it. I don't know what it is, but I just feel like they don't think it's worth it. I'm sure their marketing department looked into it. Right. They probably did and said, we're not going to do that. So I actually have a theory on the Instax. I, I think they actually sell them as some sort of kit deals because I've noticed um, uh, I work on a military base and they have piles of Instaxes all the time and they mark them down to nothing and sell them and they bring in more of them. And I think there's something where they, I, I think Fuji might sell the digital analog cameras as some sort of package where you have to buy a little bit of both because I've seen so many of those things just pile up, sold for nothing. And then more of them come in to replace them within like a week. And I, I find I've seen it several places and I, I, I don't get it. I assume there has to be some sort of marketing mechanism behind it. But that's just that's a shot in the dark. I work with an Alzheimer's nonprofit and we use them uh, in for guided reminiscence. I'll bring an insects camera to an assisted living and make 20, 30 pictures and hand them around. And we get we, we get lots of stories because when the folks can hold a photo in their hand, it brings back these memories from from when when they hold photos in their hands. All right. We've covered quite a bit of Pentax. Uh, we, we went off into some fantasy world of new cameras, Fuji Instax. Anthony, did you want to do a lightning round? Well, I'm just curious. We, we've, we've crossed over into the new year and uh, Paul had talked about resolutions, but I'm just I'm wondering if there's uh, if people are starting the new year with a new camera. And if so, what are they shooting and what have they picked up recently? Oh, Larry's got something. This is my first like-ish camera. It's a Fed 3. Those are nice. Yeah, it's a, it seems to work. I haven't uh, 
put a roll of film through it yet, but it's, uh, it's a little stiff and old like me. And um, it seems to work. And then the first roll of film is going in it tomorrow. And my resolution is to collect less and shoot more. It's a good resolution. I've got one. Um, as you know, you know, gas is a very transmissible disease. So on the recording of the last podcast, I picked up an STD. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so this is the uh, this is the Viscowide 16 STD. It's got a swing lens on it. I think this is around 1961. Uh, looking forward to running some film through it. The one thing I well, two things I don't like is one is that the, the shutter release is tiny and I'm afraid I'm going to drop this thing and break it. And secondly, it's very easy to hit the, the, um, the film, the frame reset button on the top. But I'm look, looking forward to using this guy. That's 16 millimeter, right? Yeah. Is it perforated or unperforated? You can use both, actually. It has uh, their branded cartridges that came with it. And you can use either perforated or unperforated 16 That's millimeter cool. film. That's very cool. Yeah. Well, when you finally get some images from that, Mark, I'm definitely going to want to see that. Yeah, we'll do. Yeah. So just in case anybody's curious uh, on the Zoom call, Larry is directly below Mark and Paul is to his left. So uh, they're the ones closest to the guy with the STD. So uh, <laughs> you guys better be careful. <laughs> that's hilarious. Cool. That's that's a nice gas. I managed to get, get a few things over the break as well. Um, I was lucky. I, I got um, Kex meter. So oh, think, nice. Uh, it's my first one of those meters that you, you sort of put into a cold shoe or hot shoe. Yeah. Um, which looks, it's really a lot smaller than I thought it was going to be. They don't do themselves justice on the advertising. I've got a uh, Lumix, you know, of course, there has to be a Digicam here, a Lumix LX3. And that's the one where you have the widescreen on the back. But this came with a filter kit as well. So um, it's got a um, circular polarizer on it at the moment. But the whole thing, it's its amazing what they did with the filter kit on these because it's actually like this big cone that you, you know, like half a toilet roll that you actually, you know, screw on wow. to the front. And so so that's that's pretty cool. But um, keeping in theme with the show, and someone called this probably the digital version of 110. I don't know if you can see this, but it's a Ricoh RDC7. And um, it's it, it looks like a 110 camera until you start, you flip up the screen. And suddenly it looks like a little mini computer, <laughs> so, um, which is really bizarre. I haven't shot with this one yet. Um, I have to get a new uh, battery charger for it. But that's, It looks um, like it plays DVDs. It does, doesn't it? It looks like a, one of those portable DVD players, but in miniature. Yeah, keeping in, in sense of the Pentax show and it's, you know, Rico is very much related with Pentax. I thought I'd sort of bring that one up. Hey, Theo, that, uh, that LX3 is very beautiful. I, a long time ago, I had an LX3 and it was the first um, camera that I actually loved. I wished I still had it, but uh, I got some really good, Im well, in my opinion, pretty good images, not because of, of you know, uh, skill or anything, but just the image quality. I just loved that camera. And I love the fact that you can switch the aspect ratio right on the lens. Interesting enough, my uh, my first playing around with it is fantastic. The reason I actually got it was because I picked up a uh, Leica Deluxe 3 a few months ago. And unfortunately, the sensor went on that one. It's, uh, it's doing some really weird stuff on the sensor. There's lines coming across and all sorts of stuff. And I believe the LX3 and the Deluxe 3 were actually made together. So um, I thought, well, this time I might go for the Panasonic version of it because maybe they, they have some magic sauce in there, which makes them last a bit longer. And it is fantastic. I love it. I just love the aspect, 16 by 9 aspect ratio on it. That, that's, that's what's really hooked me in. And um, I took it out the other day with my Mamiya 7 with the panoramic kit in it. 
So I just spent the whole day shooting pano type type photos. Well, it has a like a, a is it a sumo Similux? Lux? No, not sumo. It's a Similux. Similux yeah. Lens, yeah. So um, that surprised me too. I bought mine new, and it has traveled the world with me several times around. That that was my throw it in the bag, take it out into the uh, the coffee fields, take it onto the farms, uh, throw it in the back, and go out on the boat. Uh, that that camera has been. Uh, quite a workhorse for me. Yeah, the LX cameras are just fantastic. Yeah, I agree. I've got I've got the LX3 and the LX5 and love them both. Theo, is there a model number on that filter attachment for the LX3? Because I'd like to pick one up if I could. Yeah, it's the um, it's called the lens adapter. It's the DMW dash LA4. LA4. Yeah. Okay. Thank and you. And then you pick up the Lumix PL filter. Oh, this is the polarized filter. They're forty-six millimeter uh, filters. Um, and they're, they're DMW LPL 46 for the, for the filter, which, which is an interesting effect. I've, I've never put a polarizer on a, uh, on a little uh, digicam before. And it's an interesting effect when you, when you start rotating it. Very cool. Thank you. Ed, any new gas? Anything new? Uh, try, trying to control myself and this all does not help. Yeah. But, hey, you know, no, my, my resolution for this year is to stop being such a perfectionist and carry my camera more film camera that is and just shoot more like yeah. take advantage of opportunities all the time to just shoot 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 so there you go that's a good good uh, resolution andrew so uh, i actually i'm gonna try and sell some cameras i don't have a <laughs> massive collection but i have too many and i've said that many times but i'm i'm pretty sure i'm actually gonna do it but i i saying that I bought, I don't know if I showed you guys this. The Brumburger. It's technically branded as a Brumburger, but it's a Neoka S2. And of course, when I bought it, I, I quickly realized there's another Brumburger that's actually a Royal 35P, I think. And I ordered one of those too. So yeah. that's getting here in a it's few It's a days. Royal. I have the box for that camera. Oh, you got the box. I mean, that's I cool. have the camera too, but I have a boxed case, everything, nice. the Brumburger. It's a Neoka 2. They're actually pretty good. I mean, it's a, it's a it's a simple camera. It's a basic camera. I really liked it because I, I um I wanted something a little simpler. I kind of like the rangefinder style, and I like the fact it it focuses very close. Yeah. That's one of my complaints. Rangefinders is most of them have like a three to five foot minimum focus, and on this it's like one point seven feet. And I, I've never seen another one that focuses that close. And I kind of yeah. like the, the dual strike film advance. It's kind of a neat thing. The Kodak Signet thirty five um, is a rangefinder, and I'm pretty sure it goes down to two feet, so not quite. 1.7 mm. but that's a good one for slightly closer focus but that's cool that's it for me marcy anything new any new reviews you got planned oh i always have like 27 drafts you know in the background <laughs> but i have mostly you know i don't buy cameras really anymore or rarely do i and i people give me stuff all the time and so i was just was when i'm thinking about what am i doing i got right around me I have a whole every camera that I'm looking at right now someone has given to me and recently I had a friend pass away and before he died he wanted me to come and get his camera collection and I was thinking he has great stuff really but you know some of it's like beyond what I'm my $12 limit and so I went and I got it and I'm like, what am I going to do with all this stuff? So I have cameras since we were redoing things in the house, you know, I have cameras that are in boxes put away and that's not right. That's just wrong. It's like, it's like chaining your dog up or something, you know, don't do it. So I'm going to change my studio now that I don't have people coming in. Now that I'm retired, I don't have people coming in and I put shelves all over like you guys have. 
and I'm going to put the cameras on there because I mean, I'm watching Andrew talk about one camera and Mike runs over and grabs it. He knew where it was. It wasn't yeah. in the box upstairs in the back, you know, that kind of thing. So, so one of the reasons I'm here is to look at your backgrounds and try to figure out what kind of shelf I'm putting up. So it's not yeah. about getting any, you know, buying cameras, but you know, so, so who has the best shelving? What do you think? Well, the best display I've ever seen is Vlad Kern's USSR photo. His, okay. his display is, is fantastic. And he used Ikea shelves. Mine, I can't move my laptop enough to really show you, but that's all two by sixes that I got from Home Depot. Right. I did three deep. So it's really 15 and a half inches front to back. I have four by fours in the middle and on the ends for weight. So I mean, this thing is so sturdy and I screwed everything together. So I a hundred percent made it myself and I have led lights that run up. They're just not on right now. So um, I found that building my own shelves, if you're, if you have the time mm -hmm. and ability to do it is definitely the best way to go. Cause then you can make it exactly how you want. Mark, yours are custom built too, right? Right. Yeah. I just, I designed, uh, drew it up in AutoCAD or something and sent it over to the guy to build. And it, it's two sets of shelving actually. So I've got probably 15 linear feet. And then I have a corner, a corner um, closet in the, in the back for tripods and stuff like well, that. How deep is, how deep are your shelves? It, it runs about, uh, I think it's 18, 19 inches oh, deep. Okay. Yeah. And then down at the bottom, I have them build um, squares. I could fit the 12 by 12 sort of packing crates into for accessories and stuff like that. Okay. Right. Yeah. With, with mine being 15 and a half inches deep, I can fit comfortably four SLRs with lenses in front of one another range finders. I can fit up to six mm -hmm. front to back, depending on how deep I want to go. So you could fit quite a bit in there, but um, I've always, I know some people do it and they, they'll say they don't have any problems, but cameras get to be so heavy. I'm so nervous of people who have glass shelves. I, I would worry about that because of the weight some of these things have. I mean, this, I have no idea how much the shelf could possibly weigh, but it's anchored to the floor. I anchored it to the wall because I have small kids, you know, they're not going to likely climb up it. But I mean, if this thing were to collapse, it'd kill somebody with all the weight. Yeah. I'm going to attach mine all to the wall and build yeah, it. Yeah, that's what I did too. I hadn't thought of going that far deep, you know, it's just a... Uh... More areas you've got to dig out and clean out too. I've got the IQ ones in mind. They're not as deep, but like um, like uh, Mike said, I've, I've anchored it to the wall because yeah, um, yeah you got to. I, I don't think these the glass front too, right? Yeah, yeah. I bought the glass front for it as well, and they that's really good because I've I've barely had to dust my cameras or anything like that. It it, it really I keeps barely the dust do off. dust my camera, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I. I haven't sort of had the need for it either. So, and and it's really good in terms of leaving the cameras with the the lens caps off as well, because that's the one thing I'd, I'd start to worry about is if uh, if oh. if I didn't have the glass in front of them. But I mean, the the drawback on these is they're not very deep. The the, the standard, I think they're called Billy. Um, Billy. Cases. Yep. That's what Vlad uses too. Well, yeah. Yeah, and I have inserted the the glass shelves in between. Um, the normal shelves, but I do limit how much I put on the glass shelves as well, mainly because if I put too many uh, solid shelves in there, it really limits you putting a second camera behind one, one behind the other because you can't see it. Okay. So okay. the glass just lets a bit more light through. If you get the Billy, for anybody listening, if you ever want to get the Billy shelves from Ikea, um, they, they do work really well. Like Theo said, they're not super deep, but they are good for... Um, for cameras, but they don't include the doors. 
you have to buy that separately. Yeah. And Ikea sells it as more linen, I think is what it's called. They make them specifically to mount with the hinges um, yeah. and the door for it. So that's, I, I had that written down somewhere. On the plus side, it's very easy to attach. Yeah, to. a lot easier than building it from scratch. Yeah. And, and the trick with these two is, um, you can't see it now, I can't really move my camera, but on top, um, you can buy attachment, which gives you another two two shelves higher as well. And it just literally sits on top of those. I don't have any real gas. I've got nothing new, but I want to give a shout out. Uh, just a couple of days ago, I was in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Um, on episode 25 of the Camerosity podcast, we had Steve Sasson on talking about the first digital camera. And one of the, the guests on that show is Daniel Coons. Daniel was the guy who built the replica of Steve's original camera. Um, so I went to visit him at a store in, in Grand Rapids and I got to see, I got to hold his replica of the uh, Steve Sasson's original camera. And Daniel opened it up for me. Like he unscrewed the top and folded out. And I have some pictures that I'll post in the group to share. And it is, it is mind blowing the level of detail that he did. And he told me that when he had Steve see his replica, he was opening it up and was like, just, blown away like at how accurate this thing is i mean so while i can't say i held the original i mean this is as close as you could possibly be to the original camera you know so i could i could say i held like a piece of history but um, in addition to that daniel is a huge fan uh robot theo of of early digicam so he has probably he does have some film cameras too but he probably has more digicams um, then he does film cameras and he's got them organized by year. Like he's got a whole area of digi cam like uh, video floppy cameras from like 1988, 1989. He's got several of the Kodak DCS, the digital camera science, I think is what that stood for. Those early Nikon and Canon SLR hybrid S, uh, digital cameras. Uh, he's got a, he's got an early Kodak dental camera, a digital camera that was made for dentists. Uh, it just, it's, it's mind blowing. Like just that whole segment of, of the pioneering from like mid eighties up to about 2000, he just had a huge display. It was super, super cool. So Daniel, I don't know if you're going to listen to this episode, but uh, super awesome to meet you. If you guys are ever in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan area, he works at Norman camera. So stop by there and uh, pick up a pack of film or something from him and support a, a small camera shop. Paul, anything new? No, nothing really. I, I got a cool lens and that was it. A 1935 Lights, New York, 90 millimeter Wallensack lens oh. back in the, the mid, or I'm sorry, mid 40s, not 35. The mid 40s, uh, Leica couldn't supply some of the lenses that uh, they needed for, for the cameras. So Wallensack made them and Lights, New York yep, sold them. Lights, New York. That's, That's what I was going to say. And then I think we're coming back to Anthony. Looking back back the end of 2022 was just really difficult for me at work and i just kind of stopped shooting and so i'm I'm been going back and revisiting some of the cameras that i picked up towards the end of the year last year so i just spent a week with the uh the canon uh, vt deluxe with the little bottom winder really really enjoyed shooting that the uh accurate dacquerel and uh and then the uh uh the kw pilot trying to figure that little critter out uh, I, I was sort of, uh, you know, I was using, uh, I, I found some uh, Verichrome pan from 1974 and 127 format on eBay for around $6 a roll, which I thought was pretty good. That's really good. And it's held up pretty well. Uh, but like you, um, you know, this is, a, this is a half frame 127 collapsible TLR. 
uh, from what 1931 maybe or early 30s yeah and it had a uh, this really wonderful swing out brass film advance lever with an automated counter you know I was I was trying to figure out how to because if you, if you pull it two full clicks it overshoots the numbers and goes into the next number and so I thought well I'll be really tricky and just it, it kind of would go ping when it hit the, the number would line up direct and I thought oh that's got to be the right frame count and instead exactly half of the film overlaps by about a fifth of each frame yeah i had i had problems advancing the film on that one too and then once it got past frame like eight they had you know two full clicks or two full pulls would advance at exactly one number and i had no framing issues so i guess i just gotta guess on those others and maybe do like one and three quarters or, or one and a you know just do two pulls and, and and burn some film uh with bad spacing they didn't make the 16 numbers on 127 i think for a very short while they started to i think one of the japanese companies did that but it wasn't common so you, you just have to guess it's just sort you have of to guess me. but what a cool odd camera yeah. i mean i'm really happy that, that that mr novak sent that to me to try uh because I, I mean i can't imagine ever getting another chance to shoot this camera uh, especially once I saw what they're selling for on eBay uh, as, as a true collector's item. But what a 127 half frame TLR. And then, oh, going forward, you know, it's funny because we have our, we have a, like a, a you know private chat for the hosts and Paul's always going on about, oh, never another Barnack like, uh, oh, I'll never get another Barnack. Oh, wait, I just got a box of three, uh, three Fs uh, in the mail today. Uh, and so I'm, I'm, uh, quietly stalking a 3F myself because I've never had a Barnack Leica. I've got lots of, of clones. You know, I've got the Leo Tax and I've got the uh, the uh, Canon and uh, I've got my Russian copies, but I've never had an actual Leica Barnack. I'll find out this week if I'm going to be successful at acquiring a, a very nice set with a, with a 3F. Well, good luck to you there. Thanks. Paul, our next episode, who are we going to have on? Ah, yeah. Brandon Monroe is going to join us. Brandon is a young guy who uh, has spent the last couple of years learning how to repair contacts to 2A, 3, and 3A cameras. And uh, he's going to join us uh, and uh, run us through some uh, what he, where he, where he gathered this information because he went to the old guys. And uh, some of them were very willing to share information, others not quite so much. But uh, he actually went so far as to buy uh, a, a contacts camera that was overhauled by, I want to say, I'm not going to mention his name, but by the premier guy. contact repairman in the U.S. He bought a camera that he had recently repaired just so he could see how he did it. He, he will be joining us, and uh, he has four of my cameras right now. Yeah. Uh, two are complete and two are still uh, still on the bench, but that's going to be fun. He'll he'll be a, a lot of fun to have. I'm with super us. excited. You know, I like talking about contacts. Um, I've sp spoken many many times about my one. Uh, I know he's not touching those two, but to have another option as somebody who can touch the twos and threes, very cool. So we'll look forward to that in episode 41. Uh, I'm putting together. We have some ideas for episode 42 to get some pretty uh, interesting guests on and talk about cameras that don't get a lot of love too often here. But as always, the topics and discussions on the Camerosity podcast are determined by you, the listeners. While we sometimes go into a show with an idea what we want to talk about, as you guys have listened, for those of you who've listened to multiple episodes, that can change quickly and unexpectedly, uh, which is, I think, the greatest thing about this 
show. So just wanted to say thank you, everybody, for an awesome 2022. This is a good start to this year. I uh, appreciate all the first-time callers. Ed, it was great to meet you. Marcy, I know you've been trying to come on the show a couple of times, so it's super awesome to uh, actually see you and hear your voice. You know, we've corresponded through Facebook for quite a while. Andrew, Mark, uh, Mario, it's always awesome for you guys to be on. Larry, you too. We lost Robert. We lost some of the other people who joined uh, shortly on. So thank you to those guys for um, for joining us. Um, does anybody else have anything else they want to say before we go? Happy New Year. Night, Happy everybody. New Year. Good night. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 If it seems really bright here, and my my wife has a grow operation going here, right now. <laughs> oh, uh, I saw that online, mate. Yeah, you know, should should you be putting that online, or are you going to have like the you know the, the just, drug police knocking your door? It's, down? All, it's all herbs and spices. Well, that yes, spices. Yeah, no wacky tobacco. No, not not so far. No special uh, herbs and spices. Is, yeah, is that what you say. <laughs>